You're listening to Wake Up Tucson. This podcast is a Bustos Media production on The Voice. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Let's stay up in Phoenix. Um, so David Livingstone, um, David Livingstone, I, uh, I presume. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so he has more questions about, he's a, of course, a, a state, uh, state representative, David Livingston. He has some questions because, um, Katie, uh, racist Katie has been uh, accused of stonewalling the lawyers and legislators who like to know what she did with the million dollars of private funds she raised for her inaugural celebrations. Now, according to the House Appropriations Committee Chair David Livingston, a recent disclosure by Hobbs revealed that the state inaugural fund... Too good. This is too good. So remember, Katie raised a million bucks for a party. Now, I think I just, there's two things here. Is yes. one and a half? Million and a half. That's true. And she spent like $75. She charged people to come. Okay. So here's the thing. So it gets, so that this is where the beautiful are. So she raises over a million dollars. You know, uh, how much was APS in for? Quarter mil? $250,000. Okay. I'm sure TEP had to be in there for at least 10,000 or something. We'll look it up. And I bet you for so. your admission, I bet you it was shrimp rings. Uh, I, I bet. No. Well, yeah, so you had to pay to get in, which was 75 to 100 bucks to get in. Okay. So here's so check this out. So I just want to get, get let's get all our let's get all our or just a little math. I know I got a couple minutes here. I went a little late on the other one, okay? Is so a million and a half raised, charged 80 bucks a plate or whatever to get in, right? She then magically announces she's got a half mil in her back pocket to run for Democrats to get the majority in the in the House and Senate. To flip the legislature. Yeah. Right. And according to the chair of the Appropriations Committee, according to her disclosure, the state inaugural fund lacks sufficient funds to pay the outstanding uh, invoices. <laughs> That's great. I mean. So she's stiffing the vendors. <laughs> So, I mean, think about that. I mean, first of all... That is so awesome. It wasn't even that great of a party, all right? She charged you 80 bucks a pop to get in. She said she's got a half mil that just came out of nowhere for a uh, state legislative election fund for 2024, and according to her disclosure, she can't pay the bills. That is awesome. I mean... Now, according to the... the campaign manager for the 501c4 nonprofit social welfare organization that put on the party. How's that for a stretch? Did you did you say 90125? Oh, here we go. Just play it. Just play it. Let's go. Just play the music. When we come or don't play the music or hit the button. Jeez. Here we go. According to the 90125 Nonprofit social. Think about it, the nonprofit social welfare organization put on the party. So they only spent two ten on the party. They raised a million and a half. They charged eighty bucks a pop. Magically, she has a half a mil in her back pocket for elections. Oh, and she can't pay her bills. It's a true Democrat, huh? Wow. 
Uh, good morning and welcome back to uh, Nate Foster uh, from AZCOPS, Arizona Cops uh, Union, and he's an 18-year TPD officer. Did I get that right? Uh, just over 15 years. 15 years. Yeah. I apologize. That's okay. You look very young. I shouldn't even... I shouldn't even done that to you well, thank you so in this job you look younger than you should be i'm just telling you last yes. last time you were on and we've gotten uh that video we i put it on youtube that video has gotten easy over a thousand views since the last time you've been on great of yeah. you're explaining you explaining the reality of tpd yes we talked about staffing yes um i think that one of the big numbers that came out of our previous discussion that remind folks is when we talk about officers that can actually be on the streets that What's like, it's the new stat. What's the real deployable, right? Yes. 250? Does that sound rough? Roughly uh, correct? Yeah, commissioned. So yep. then uh, you got the city now creating a bunch of CSO positions. Those are those are non-commissioned right. civilians. So we got a lot of those now, which is uh, a big change. Do you like the CSOs? Uh, they're, they're great. I just, we need to come up with... Uh, it's, not a, it's not a replacement. It's not a replacement because they can't go to a lot of calls for service. They're not they're not armed, they're not trained, they're not certified to be police officers. Sure. So the city's using them as kind of like a I don't know, a band-aid, I would say at this point. Sure. To uh, address like non priority calls. They help out with uh, collision scenes, stuff like that. Which is important work. But you're right. At this point in time of what's going on with the overriding crime and murder in this town. Yes. Right. The need for commissioned post-certified officers is at a super premium. Correct. Uh, Chief Kazmar put out some numbers basically saying our our total staffing is up uh, when you factor in all those created extra CSO positions. Sure. But in reality, our commission numbers aren't really improving. They're still they're still dropping, not to the extent they were previously. So he is turning it around in that aspect. We're not seeing the attrition that we once were, which is great. Um, and he's changing the culture within the agency, which was much needed. But at the end of the day, like when you call 911 and you expect someone at your doorstep with a badge and a gun, you know, we're still, uh, you know, losing people and not maintaining the numbers we need. So there's still, again, there's still enough of attrition that we're still losing commission officers as we move through a year. Yes. Um, so when you're, when you're so low on commission officers, there's this need to be very efficient in your jobs. Yes. Would you say that right now, well, let's say 100% is amazingly efficient and zero is, of course, non-efficient. Where, where would you rank the efficiency of TPD operations right now, roughly? It's, so I talk to the patrol officers all the time, and I'm hearing constant horror stories about our, com our computer system, our dispatch computer system that they rely on every day to do our job, their job. Sure. Um, imagine having a job and you have a specific tool you use to, com to complete your task for your job and it's the key item you use and not having that every day. It would be almost So when you say not having that, because so this is what you're being informed about when there's something going on yes. that you need to go, there's a murder going on, there's shots, there's a robbery, these so, kind of things. So they use it for everything. They use it to uh, see what kind of calls are holding are needing to be dispatched they use it to see where other officers are at sure uh which is a very key component to safety <laughs> um we also use it to run people to see you know if your car's stolen the person that they're having contact with has warrants if they are who they say they are 
So these are constant issues that officers deal with day to day when they're out there on the streets having contacts with people. And the computer system they rely on, is go, it goes down constantly. The network doesn't support the users that are uh, on it. All right. So with all this, we know that Tucson is a busy place with all variety of maladies and crimes on any one day. So there's a limit to the, the amount of users that can be on the system at the same time? That is being debated internally, but I have seen uh, from internal IT sources, the number is at 150, but then I've heard from other people that that's not true, but it doesn't, the system doesn't work. It's not uh, sufficient. So the system is going through, uh, an officer can uh, experience repeated crashes of the system during their shift. Correct. Now, when a system crashes, how long does it take to possibly, what's the, what, what's the I guess my thing is, what's the... Uh, length of an outage typically or could be it can be hours god dang so <laughs> you got the all the patrol guys pretty much handcuffed to being able to do their jobs and then it gets even worse than that so let's say um, i had a contact with you in the field and i decided to make an arrest uh the, com the computers won't print the citations um, i'm hearing routinely it takes over 30 minutes for an officer to print a citation and they're fighting with the computer trying to print the ticket. Meanwhile, they got the world going on around them. They're dealing with a potential criminal. So, and they're completely distracted trying to print this ticket. But at the same time, there's 34 other things hitting the screen that they got to go do. Yes. So, other agencies don't use the same system we're on. They're on uh, Spillman or on Integraph. And I do not hear anything. Uh, I don't hear anything about uh, system problems from the other agencies. There's so we're the only fine. agency really out there. So Pima County Sheriff's, Pinal County Sheriff's, OV, Marana are using this other one. Correct. And we're on, we decided to go with Intergraph for whatever reason. I don't know uh, why we chose that system. There's been lawsuits brought up against them from other agencies across the country. Um, so we're on this system. Uh, I think U of APD is also on it and South Tucson, but that's it. So just before we go to break, I just want to make sure, I want to reiterate for everyone, we're talking with Detective Nate Foster from TPD. So what you're saying is this system that is so crucial to do your job and at the same time is vital to the safety of officers and the citizens of Tucson can literally crash out on an officer for hours during their shift. Yes, and it's happening multiple times a week right now. That is unacceptable crap. Yes. Let's go to break. When we come back, I want to talk about the other not so efficient things going on in TPD that is literally a bane to our officers and our citizens. So, and then you were just telling me of another amazing situation and by amazing, I mean, not amazing. And this is what's going on at the County jail. So we've been talking about on the show for months about Chris Nanos has a unbelievably understaffed jail, right? And he got rid of a bunch of people due to the COVID vaccine and all. I mean, this is a lot of this is self-inflicted wounds, but that is now affecting TPD officers uh, as they're trying to book, uh, book people that they're arresting. What's going on there? Yeah. So the, the jail's critically staffed by the, the county. The sheriff's department is responsible for that. Yep. So I was fielding complaints from uh, officers telling me that it's taking three hours to book people oh into God. the jail. So when you factor in three hours to book someone, the process of arresting someone, driving to and from the jail, that eats up, that one arrest could literally eat up an officer's like half of their day. And then how motivated do you think they're out to go arrest another criminal after that? Right. You know, like at that point, you're just like, you're do your day's done. You don't, you're, 
it demoralizes you to to work. Same thing with the computer system. And there's a judge kicking the ki- the kicking the the perp out literally. 23 minutes later. Yeah, yeah, especially if the, you take them down there and you know that they're just going to be out. Like, there's certain things they have to book for, like domestic violence. Um, but, yeah, it's just another inefficiency in a system. Like, I, th- I think TPD takes a lot of heat for being, like, a, a broken police agency or whatever, you know, the, how the public views us. But we're, we're just a small piece of, like, a systemic failure within the county at this point. Sure. You know, and if you look at World Valley, Marana, Sarita... They're all bolstering their own uh, court systems to really address crime and deter it. And they're they're not relying on the county anymore. No. Besides for the jail. So what's going on? You're telling me that we're starting to use community service officers at the jail to do the bookings? Yeah. So our agency, I actually think it's a good idea. Um, it's They're using our civilian uh, positions, the, the CSOs, okay. to be bookers. Okay. So they'll handle the booking process for TPD-only arrests. Okay. So the city pays the jail uh, every time someone gets arrested, you know, for booking costs. Where is the, what's the county doing now for that cost? Now that we're basically staffing them to do their job that we're paying them for. And then Nanos, his solution is the jail's broken. We need a new jail. You can build, you know, the biggest jail on the planet, but you don't have any staff to put in there. So maybe staff your jail and run it properly before you start you know, opening your, you know, asking people to fork over cash. Yeah, h- him going for a whole new jail is the mo- one of the most misguided things I've seen out of the county. And I've seen some misguided, but the place is so broken internally. He's leading the country in in-prison deaths right now, right? So I think it was, K- yeah, KOLD. So $1.4 million grant to benefit low-income first-generation Pima County, Pima, Pima Community College students. And of course... When you have when, when I see a headline like that, it crosses into so many different topics. I thought the same thing, you know. And um, so they're going to get 1.4 million over five years for the trio, not the loser trio, not the Joe Snell losers, T R I O, upward bound math and science or UBMS uh, program based at the Desert Vista campus. It's going to serve 60 low income first generation STEM interested high school students from Alta Vista, Desert View, and Sunnyside High Schools. Um, we're excited to have these additional resources. And um, so here's the thing. So the number that I saw in this that was interesting is what percentage of graduates from those schools earn a college degree within six years of completing their studies, right? And, I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road with a yeah. lot of our conversations. Because yeah, yeah. I've always said this, you know, like in the uh, – we have a National Geographic about dolphins and they, they, uh, they tag the dolphins so they know exactly what happened to it, uh, you know, in, in migrations and stuff. If you could somehow – not – this is not an invasion of privacy thing. I would love to know what these outcomes are for these kids, right? When they leave TUSD and they go to post-secondary kind of education, what, what what do those stats look like? And I'm sure they're out there, but I'm sure if you're the TUSD school board... You don't want people to know what, right. what those outcomes are. I think it would be... Guys like us would think it enlightening. Adelita Grijalva, Jennifer Ekstrom, Steve Holmes, and that crew would say they were terrifying. So, Bruce... And nobody in the media is asking for it. No. <laughs> so, I would love... So, I guess I have to go find... Who did this story? Oh, this is a reprinted press release from PCC... Uh, 
uh, PR. Cut, cut and paste. All right. Now, don't get me wrong. There's more real info in here than I've gotten from a Bud Foster story in the last 10 years. True that. All right. Now, so what they're saying in the press release... So I would I gotta I gotta find out whoever whoever sent this out from Lee's crew. All right, is so less than so here's here's the number, less than ten percent of the graduates of the area's high school high schools earn. Okay, now this is this is interesting. So they talk about um, Alta Vista, Desert View, and Sunnyside. Okay, and then it says less than ten percent of the graduates of the area's high school earn a degree within six years of completing their studies, which which validates everything we've ever talked about the failure of K through twelve in Tucson, Arizona. Right, these kids right are going; they're graduating, which I always say is the bittersweet day in Tucson. You're graduating, but what did you learn or not learn? Right, you thrown out into the world, and you don't have the skills. Or the background in education. You could barely give change a quick trip. Right. Right. So when we talk about 10% of the kids, they're going, they're doing Tommy Boy. They're doing six years of college and 90% of them attain nothing. So then the next question is local geniuses that think they're education gurus, right? Is what percentage of those 90% of, of, of that 90%, please let me know how much student debt they have. Because not all of them are on a free 100% ride because of uh, poverty levels or demographic or whatever. Because that's the other part of where rubber meets the road. So I think that's another dirty secret no one wants to know out there is of those 90% of kids, six years of college don't have a degree. And I bet there's at least $50,000 average of student debt hanging over this kid's head. Well, Ralph Grijalva, if you remember back a few years ago, had promoted programs <clears throat> that uh, gave those students free money to go to to go to Pima, right? And they never showed up. I don't remember that, but um, so remember that was the whole idea of. Now we know that Joe Flores, as a chancellor, was quite um, special. Okay, and um, but the one thing that that whole kerfuffle about going after Joe Flores, right? Right, and it was the idea that he just left his flanks open with some silliness, right? personal behavior, right, right. Uh, bringing in the Chris Farley-esque van down by the river, motivational speaker guy, all that stuff. Matt's doing his on the other side of the glass, which is pretty good. Now, um, <laughs> but that whole kerfuffle, that whole start of the war over there was about they wanted to raise the standards, right? That instead of having... It, it was a war. Sure. It was a war. And, you know, I think what happened was is that there was so many... Uh, there was so much free money coming in. Exactly. Right? For kids to go to community college, right? That was creating extra jobs, right? And the Grijalva crew loved that, right? But if now all of a sudden Pima's like, you know, instead of a sixth grade math level, we'd like a ninth grade math level. And all of a sudden they said, well, those kids can't get into Pima at that point. That's right. Well, and they and they wanted them to take a remedial course as right. well. And that, of course, would be insulting right. for them to take a remedial course. I'm just telling you, man. Go, 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 go. I, I have, I have kids in my life that I've coached soccer with, you know, that I've coached in soccer that done their Pima thing, and they'll tell you that some of these kids that they go to school with, they don't know how they got out of high school. They literally don't have the basic skills to be in any sort of college situation, let alone Pima. So the six years to get a degree that you that you referred to, yes, sir, was that for a four year? Or for two-year associates? That's just, they go to college for six, after six years of going to college, only 10% of them earn a degree. So what are we doing? I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of motion and maneuvering and angst and whatever and money for a kid to go to school, whether the money comes out of their pocket and is loan or their own cash or whatever taxpayer dollars are subsidizing this to earn nothing. Always having a good time. 
with this this history of Tucson broadcasting. Ed's exercising as long as he's getting a little in and out. Yeah, <laughs> some noisemakers. This is time. therapy, <laughs> lung therapy. Having fun with Ed Alexander, Bruce Rash, and Betsy Bruce. So let's hey. talk about um, ten years of doing the Betsy and Mojo show. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had um, you know back in the day, uh, we there was a formula that was uh, we played by. Uh, the three of us uh, represented the deer, the and the dork. I wasn't particularly comfortable being the deer because I, I'm not kind of the classic female radio persona. Uh, Omelette was more than happy to be the And, yeah, I, we would really get into it sometimes Matt, on Matt, air. Matt Neely's having seizures over you using that <laughs> word. You, you can, there's so. nothing wrong with that word. Oh, gosh. Bring it up a little bit, would you? <laughs> Thank you, Ed. And then Mojo was the door. So we kind of played by that, and, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun. You know, we were famous for some things, Wore the Roses. Um, mm-hmm. Wore the Roses, yeah. Yes, yes, and uh, Christmas Wish. We had, uh, yeah, we had a good time being as entertaining as possible. So let's talk about this, this dynamic of being a female in radio, mm. right? Because it's the idea that for so long, right, there's that, the S word. Yes. Oh, my gosh. You're very intuitive and insightful, Chris. <laughs> the S word is sidekick, Matt. You can uh, calm yourself. Yes, okay. yes, yes. <laughs> that's not where I went, <laughs> yeah. that's okay. All right. Well, right? Just, that's, yeah, that's, the, uh, that was that dynamic of how yes. females in radio, not that I agreed with it, but that's what it was. I- exactly right. Let me, let me quickly tell you a quick story because Tim and Willie, you know, got me where I was going, you know, let me hone my craft. And then I thought I could hold up half the show. So Mike Elliott comes in, and then a week later... What's here, a Mike Elliott? Mike Elliott was one of our, the partners, Mike, okay. Jimmy, and Bessie. Okay. And then comes Jimmy Kimmel. Not Jimmy Kimmel at the time. Jimmy Kimmel, right? Working his way up, too. Very talented, though. And he comes in, and I'm told that he is the, the producer. But he sits down in front of the microphone. He does not do any of the uh, producing responsibilities, pulling the CDs, believe it, back in the day. Sure. Right? Lining up the carts. And I realized that once again, I had been uh, relegated to the third wheel, just the mm. chortling female in the background. So maybe that's why we got off to a bad start, you know, <laughs> maybe. I bet. But You um, were the gopher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that did not make me happy. And I did feel like I could, I could hold up half the show. I was not going to share too much about my sex life at all on the show. I was not going to laugh at things that weren't funny. So I did want to kind of pave my. If you path. want to do it now, Matt would love it. Oh yeah. No, I'm just no in relation to hitting. Well, the, Matt, hit, tell me hit, something hit. funny, and I'll, <laughs> I'll the, let you know if it is funny. He's worried about that dump button all the time. Oh so. okay. All right, so. yeah. So, yeah, I did try to... I wanted very much to be a role model to uh, young women, and I knew a lot of kids were listening to me, and I wanted to be a role model. I wanted to come off as intelligent and informed and, uh, yeah, not a giggly girl in the background. So when you... Uh, so you... I, I, I appreciate your honesty about this discussion. Yes. So you have these feelings of feeling like the kind of the third wheel mm-hmm. here, right? Or kind of put in the back, back of the bus, as we like to say. Yeah. How do you? How do you? How, how have you overcome that? What was? What, what? What? How did you first start off, and maybe it didn't work out, and then as you learn through pain and time, how did you? Yeah. Maneuver your way into a better spot, and maybe they didn't even know you were doing it. Well, it it was every time I got a challenge, even though, uh, yeah, I. 
I again, I was really kind of sad about being demoted once again with Mike and Jimmy. I knew whenever I had a chance, whenever my brain was working on something creative, I was going to get in there and really produce. Um, for example, we had the hypnotist from the Pima County Fair come in. Didn't Mike, we all, Jimmy yes. and I. Did you? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, that guy was pretty talented, right? Yeah, we, I never had him here. Ed didn't want to bring him here because. <laughs> After, okay, he's after, hard to book. Yeah, well, also, Ed had a problem with... No, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but we had him in. This was with Mike and Jimmy, and uh, they wanted very much to hypnotize me. Well, uh, you know, they were casting the spell, whatever that was, and, of course, <laughs> I, was, I was not going under. But you know what? Here's one of those opportunities, right? I'm not going to say I'm not going under. I am going to take advantage of this opportunity. And they guided me around, and we just had a fantastic time. I was fearless, right? Just pretending that I was hypnotized. I mean, talk about free. What suggestion did they have for <laughs> you yes, that yes, gave you yes, pause Chris. before you did it? Nothing gave me pause, but Jimmy asked me to go and kiss Mike, right? Mike, a married man. Obviously, there's a cheek as opposed to the lips. But man, I marched around that console, right? And gave him a big kiss on the, the cheek. And yeah, of course, I had to, yeah, probably do some crazy animal sounds too. But uh, yeah, I was not under. So, so take as, advantage as of that situation. The, right? As you moved into the show with uh, Betsy and the other guy. Yes. Right? Betsy and Mojo. H how did that play out, this dynamic, in those during those days? Well, uh, I appreciate you asking. Yeah, finally, I really felt like I had half the show. And there is definitely a pecking, uh, a pecking order. Mojo was the first, and then it was my opportunity to speak. There's lots of hand gestures. Well, raising of the hand, not hand gestures per Correct. se, because yeah. you can right, mm -hmm. go wildcats and send all sorts of signals. But yeah, I had a very um, excited producer who wanted very much to once again supplant me. So I had to stand up tall, stand up tall, and we did have a couple of meetings in the boss's office about the hierarchy of how the show would work. Yeah. So basically, you had a, he was stepping on your lines and trying to insert himself into the show. He he was, and uh, yeah, I would actually try to stand up behind my microphone so I could block his eye connection with Mojo. Ooh. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I know, I know. And guys, I have to admit, you know, if. Eric, and we're friends now. We're good friends. He's in Dallas. Uh, had he been maybe more witty, more entertaining than me, I, I might have let him get away with that. But no, I really, I believed in my talent. And so I did feel like he was mojo, could open the break. If I raised my hand, I had something to say. So... And you guys, yeah. you guys had a good chemistry. You and Mojo, oh, yeah. you, you were you were tight. A right? Absolutely, yeah. he so talked me off. The other guy off. in the middle, okay. He, he Mojo talked me off the uh, the cliff so many times. I can't tell you. Yeah, he's a good guy. So, did you feel like you were fifty fifty with him, or did you feel still feel a little sidekicky in those uh, days? Probably still a little sidekicky. But did, uh, did you ever overcome that? Wow, that's such a good question. You know what? I think the reception. That I know I, we're supposed to talk about cool, wacky radio yeah. stories, but I feel like this. Yeah. is... Yeah. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> Over the years, since I've been off air for so many so many years, I've gotten such amazing feedback from the general public. It has sure. been the, the kindest thing ever. So that is almost posthumously, I don't know if I'm using that word right, but after the radio, yeah, I feel like I definitely held up my end of the bargain. Well, there's so many people that I know who f think highly of you that I've, you know, when your name comes up, they... 
you you've developed this a great reputation in this town well through your work so uh, god bless I, you thank you i do have to tell you you know i do this so infrequently you can imagine when my alarm went off this morning i, I was nervous you and me yeah. you know because <laughs> yours didn't go off at 4 15 like no. Chris oh, me. listen yeah it used to be 2 30 bruce please um, crocodile tears for you. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Zinger. But, yeah, Mojo and I had a, a, a really good um, a good connection. Con- chemistry. Yeah. 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 He, uh, whenever I felt like I had made a major mistake, for example, um, we had Sherry Lewis on the phone. And my philosophy when it came to radio was to ask questions that had not been asked of the same guest. They must get so bored, right? Sure. How did you come up with the character Lamb Chop? Exactly right. right. Exactly, now, yes. And Sherry Lewis is an Ed Alexander goddess. because no, you know Ed, Ed, has, Ed, Ed has a puppet problem. Did you know that? I didn't. Yeah, oh. I Do you have a Lamb Chop? No, I think I might have it one time, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. All right. That's right. Right? Yes. So anyway, I tried to go off the beaten path, and uh, Mojo appreciated that about me. And so I said, I said, Sherry, um, did you ever knit little sweaters out of lamb chops wool? And she said... <laughs> That's the stupidest question I've ever been asked. <laughs> I was crushed. And you know what? Mojo said, that makes great radio. Yeah. You know, after afterwards. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, he, t- he talked me off the uh, the edge. Beautiful. All right, let's go to break. We can, I, can do, I can do another two hours with Betsy, uh, believe it or not, I think. But Thank you, Chris. If you ever want to come back, I'd love to do this I would again. Love to. Ed, Betsy, and Bruce. Hanging out with the great Dan Shearer from Green Valley News, Sarita Sun. Dan, welcome back, sir. Personally, I'm in a little bit of a celebration mode today because of uh, Lori Lightfoot's loss in <laughs> Chicago. Uh, she is the the mayor, and uh, if you remember, um, about two years ago, she was celebrating the two-year anniversary of her election, and she decided she would only give interviews to... Uh, journalists of color. Because, oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, oh, like I have not ever forgotten that. Uh, <laughs> and it was just surrounding that one uh, event. But the, the the message she was sending, of course, was, uh, according to her, was that uh, boardrooms and press rooms are too white. And she was, by golly, going to do something about it single-handedly. So she was only giving uh, interviews to, to, I guess, black and Latino uh, journalists, which is really insulting to the journalists, because uh, I, I think we're left to infer there that they would treat her with kid gloves, and uh, that the other journalists wouldn't, uh, and that simply is not the case. All journalists are basically built the same, uh, at least the decent ones, and so uh, I have never forgotten that about her. Uh, it was really just kind of this moronic move, and so when I heard that she was not going into the runoff in Chicago. I was uh, very happy about it, but everybody knew two years ago, by the way, that the the real reason she was doing this is because her city was on fire and um, people were dying in the streets uh, every day from uh, gun violence, and she was using this as a, as a means of distraction. She already, by then, had simply lost control. Sure. And then over the next, uh, next couple of years, uh, <laughs> proved it even more because things just have gotten worse. So, 
So uh, off to, uh, off to who, who, uh, wherever she's going to go, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, we will not miss you. I think she's so. going to go uh, work for NYU with Chris Magnus on the Everyone Racist uh, Think Tank. That's what I think. Uh, yeah, well, she will. I think she will somehow uh, find her way back to the public trough, because they always do. <laughs> um, but uh, and so good riddance. Um, and what, what, a, what a dumb move. And uh, no, I never did forget that one. One time, let me, let me tell you a Jonathan Rothschild story I never told before on the air. I don't care anymore. It's fine. Uh, he comes into an interview with me a week after Sharon Bronson beats, uh, barely beats Kim DeMarco. And we already says to me the first thing, you're not good morning, Chris. How are you doing? It's, I can't believe you jerks didn't get rid of Bronson. That's what he said to me coming into the interview. I said, you endorsed her, jerk. So don't, I said, don't get on my case that Republicans didn't get rid of someone you didn't like, right? And you endorsed her. You could have walked away from her at least, maybe. So when I, when I, when I see Zach with lots of Zs going, oh, Jonathan, what a paragon of leadership. Get the hell out of here. Lost your mind. It's a little narcissist. Um, listener Mike, you're correct about having to leave Tucson to succeed. What you did not mention is racist Regina, 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 sorry. Uh, this is his words, denying Grand Canyon University because she didn't want BMWs driving through the barrio. Now, again, that wasn't her who said that. That was Miguel Ortega from the previous segment on Wake Up Tucson called Yell at Miguel. But he wrote that in an op-ed. And he was always, he used to be, this won't surprise you, the chief of staff for Karen Ulick. But then he got in trouble with the power because he ran for TUSD school board against Adelita, and that was a problem. And so then all of a sudden, magically, he was no longer the chief of staff for Karen Ulick. Thank you for being a, a, a semi-loyal soldier. Uh, Mike continues, I've, I've, I was raised in Tucson. I've been here 54 of my 61 years, and I told my son when he graduates uh, that he has to think about leaving. We've been talking about this forever. Even uh, lawyer to the machine, Larry Hecker, when he got his rear end handed to him by Gary Davidson at a bond debate in 2015, Gary just, oh, it was Mike Tyson versus Emmanuel Lewis, okay? <clears throat> but Gary didn't bite his ear, okay? But even Larry Hecker in his opening statement, and I believe the debate uh, moderator was Dan Shearer, He's like, oh, it's so horrible. We're losing all of these graduates from the university, and they're going to other markets. That was Hecker seven years ago. It's just gotten worse. Imagine, even, even if you're someone who comes from another state from the U of A, and, and you have to drive through the filth and the fentanyl to get the class, are you really going, man, give me more Tucson after I get my paper? I need more fentanyl in my life. I mean, what are we doing here? If you remember, I, I got—I don't know if I'll even be able to find it because not that I ever pay for—I would ever pay for the Arizona Daily Star. Even usually useless little Timmy did a column years ago where he actually did something called research, and the research he did had to do with the um, the outmigration of high-salaried people out of Tucson to other markets. I don't know if this was like a ADP thing. Well, I don't know where he got that. Or maybe it was the State Department of Labor, wherever it was. And it talked about the amount of people who were making six figures in Tucson. Those jobs don't even exist. Weren't even like there was such a, a a reduction of those level jobs in Tucson as companies were downsizing, moving, whatever. And um, you're supposed to build on the knowledge of the past a little bit, right? 
it's all the same people, right? I mean, think about this, right? When Joe and I first started, Joe Snell was running trio. Still there telling you everything's great, right? I don't know how he does it. I mean, I, 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 I haven't thought about this in a long time. And quite possibly Joe Snell might, I think he might, if we look a little deeper on him, he might be one of those Vegas, um, Vegas hypnotists. That's the only way he can get away with it. I mean, he has a personality of a toilet seat, as my dad would say. I mean, is anyone listening to Joe Snell and go, God, I'd love to run through a wall for that guy, right? I mean, Michael Guyman's still hanging around, right? And, you know, so when I knew Mike, he was, when we first started, he was doing MPA, right? And Amber Smith was working with him at MPA, right? Then Michael goes over to be a trio loser, right? Then he goes over to work for Amber when she goes over to work at the chamber, and now he's back at the chamber, right? It's like the same faces, and Michael should know better. He's been doing it for years, right? So I'm going to give Mike, I'm going to give him a benefit of the doubt. It's not that he wants to keep Tucson crappy. He just doesn't have the tools to make it better, right? And part of those tools is, yes, you have to be strategic. You can't be a flamethrower like Dee Simone on all this stuff, right? But you do have to have the will, right? The will to be, to, 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 you have to have the will to want to make change happen, right? But also the tools to make it happen, right? How do you build those relationships, right? How do you express yourself in a way that is intelligent, yet a little mildly forceful? Instead of this work around the edges stuff, which is really tired, no one knows it better than me and Matt. We read this stuff all the time, right? We see how they just work around the... I told, I've, 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 it's, this is the Victoria's Secret thing. I, I say it all the time, right? The guy wants his girlfriend to wear some hot lingerie, so he keeps walking her past the, the Victoria's Secret and says... Man, you look pretty good in that uh, bustier. Uh, that's us, right? Trio tried. We we go to San Diego and go, hey, look, here's a town that might, you know, do biotech right. And then, of course, you know, Pablo Slovakia has got to, you know, do something inappropriate and blow the trips for everybody, right? Um, we go to we, we took a moment. Remember, we went to Austin. We went to San Jose, right? And that was Joe Snell instead of pointing at a, you know, at a at a at a g-string Teddy, right? He's like, hey, look, this is how normal people act. But even Joe gave up on those trips because he knows he's hoodwinking them, right? Everything's fine. Keep giving me 650000 for my organization, and I'll still pay myself 400 Gs a year. 400 Gs with a staff of four. That's good living, buddy. Hypnotist. He's a hypnotist. It reminds me of that line from Wonderful Life. Remember when George is trying to figure out this whole thing with Clarence and the alternate universe? And he goes, what are you, some sort of hypnotist? Right, that's Joe Snell. He's a hypnotist. I never. I, he's some sort of. There's a mind control thing. He's like a. He's like the worst useless bureaucrat mixed with Professor Xavier from the X Men. That's what I think it is. He can just control thoughts. That's what I'm thinking. Right. Um. And we we've talked about all those missed opportunities. Joe and I did it all, dude. We did it. We've tried to run candidates. Right. We tried to get the chamber uh, fixed, which was we brought in. Um, I, I, we were in a good spot. Wendell was the chair, right? And then Mike Varney brought in, and Mike and uh, Mar- Mike and uh, Bill Holmes, right? They come in, right? We have a we have a, a a government affairs committee run by Brad Richards from Mister Electric, and I'll do it in my Howard Cosell voice because it works pretty well. Ben Bula Garcia, right? And they were doing it, and that chamber board again got infested by you know the cable companies kind of people and all this stuff. I'll never forget me, Higgins, uh, Bill Holmes, and Varney were having breakfast at uh, Chaffin's. Had one of Alex's amazing corned beef. Just dropped my jacket. It pissed me off. 
Thank you. My jacket got caught under my chair. So we're having uh, we're having um, breakfast at Chaffin's. Corned beef cabbage. Alex made the best corned beef, sorry, corned beef hash in the entire place. And um, Bill walks up to the table and says, God rest his soul, Bill. I love that man. Okay. He says, oh, uh, hey, I'm late. I, I just sold a, uh, a sponsorship to a, uh, for a member. I'm doing it all today. $25,000 sponsorship, blah, blah, blah. And he names a classic utility, a character that works at a utility that's a perfect keep Tucson crappy kind of human. And, you know, Higgins is the nice cop in our relationship. You guys know that. Higgins was visibly pissed at Bill. And he knew Bill for 20 years. He goes, get the hell out of here. And he's like, what? Because he was happy. He scored 20. You know, it was part of his job was development, right? And Joe knew it was that step in the wrong direction. And then it happened, right? Wendell circles, cycles off his chair, right? This is Wendell who was long, who was running the uh, Casino del Sol at the time, right? And then Tony Penn takes over from the United Way, and the whole thing starts falling apart. Varney gets neutered. Varney wasn't allowed to literally print anything like a column without Tony Penn approving it. All of a sudden, Ben Bueller Garcia and Brad Richards finds out that uh, they were running a shadow government affairs committee made of board members. And then when it came time to elections, that election year that came up, they got rid of them. They, oh, yeah, we've been doing this already. You guys are gone. So it's the same. It's the same. We, Joe and I have been through it all, right? We, Joe started the Arizona Policy Institute. Do you guys remember that? That was Goldwater South. Remember Shelby Hawkins stood up against uh, Rio Nuevo on the Maynard's deal. And they and we couldn't find a judge. The judge said she didn't have standing, which didn't make sense. She was a business owner that wasn't getting free stuff from the city. So is that before or after she started getting inspections on her uh, on her business? By when she came out as the plaintiff, yeah. then the city started riddling her with extra inspections that right. she never had in the life right. of five-star pest control. Thank you. Right? Chris and Joe have done it, kids. We tried the Goldwater thing. We've done it, right? And there's been lots of times where we look behind us and there was nobody there. That's life. We're not butthurt about it. That's just life. That's why we've kind of moved on with our stuff. I mean, I'm still doing the show, but I'm not doing much on the, the other side anymore. I try. We try to get behind the right people or whatever. But, you know, it, there's only so many times Chris and Joe can hit their head against the, uh, against the door and, you know, there's not much help behind. There's been people to help us, but... This town's not interested in changing, right? And part of that, again, is the worst um, um, media, local media class I've ever seen. I mean, they're not even intellectually curious. That's the part that gets me. Yeah. We cover food pretty heavy on this show uh, over the years and with local local uh, restaurateurs every Friday, national guests, and uh, very happy to have uh, for our next interview, uh, the book is, the new book's called On the Curry Trail, and on the line is Raghavan Iyer. Raghavan, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me on. And uh, one of his previous books is 660 Curries. So uh, I got the book a couple of days ago going through it, and... Uh, it, 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 I guess the, you really go deep on the journey of curry to kind of become uh, the, one of the world's or the world's biggest comfort food. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, uh, a too much of a simplification. Yeah, I believe, <laughs> yeah, no, I believe it is. You know, I mean, it is um, the simplicity of a curry that also elevates it to a status that I think is really quite um, breathtaking and... Um, flavors that we pull out of it really are quite um, meaningful. So, yeah, I, I feel like curry has a rich history and there's a reason why. 
So we talk about the two kind of definitions of curry, right? There's the spice blend curry, and then there's the dish curry, right? Yes. Are, are there, Indians, it's... We just lost Raghavan. I'm so sorry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's the power of curry powder. Um... <laughs> so when we talk about the two definitions uh, of curry, you said Indians, and then you started coughing. So. <laughs> yeah, Indians... Um... You know, like their sauces, and to us, sauces are curries. When the English came on board, they loved the sauces they sampled and they put them into a jar, labeled it in a powdered form, and called it curry powder. And that's how the rest of the world tried to process it. So, and we we took that and we spread that gospel around. <laughs> the uh, I was uh, listening to an interview uh, with uh, Monher Jeffrey. Um, just it's interesting. It was like a couple of weeks ago came up on my feed and uh, she was talking about uh, how, of course, curry is in, of course, England, probably the most popular food in England. And she she kind of gave mm-hmm. it a, she gave it a little bit of a uh, she kind of mentioned the phrase reverse colonialism right through the food and the curry coming back the other way. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, that's what the English were good at. They were masters at colonialism. Excuse me, this is my, I have a tumor and um, the tumor sizes are growing and so the coughing is a result because of that. So I'm sorry to hear about that. I apologize. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So I feel like, you know, um, the colonials did a lot of damage. Uh, people say, oh, you know, they did infrastructure and stuff. But I said, yeah, it's more for their well-being. They wanted it so that they could get from point A to point B. And that's why, you know, you see the spread of, um, you know, um, rails or trains and automobiles and so on. So Would that same transportation, um, would that same transportation network uh, enable the uh, spread of the uh, wonders of curry in a faster way than it w- ever yes. would be on its own? Yes, very much so. I think it's very instrumental, you know, and uh, you look at, um, there was a pattern that the colonials, the colonials followed. You know, it started out with the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Danish and the French and um, people from Denmark. And then, of course, the English were the masters at it. So um, it was really quite um, interesting how they followed each other and, uh, um, you know, and eventually it spread around the world right from the Americas to Trinidad and Tobago to Oceania. So I feel it's um, it's a story that has a lot of mystique and mystery and intrigue, and um, I love it. And this is part history, geography, and definitely there's lots of recipes in here. So is this is, you've already done a book about curry recipes, and so how, how did you pick the recipes for this book, uh, Raghavan? Uh, this one was really based on looking at curries from around the world and see what kind of ingredients they had and how they showcased it. And, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, you look at Malaysian curries or Ethiopian curries or curries from China, for that matter, and they were all different. Um, I look at Malaysia as a melting pot and um, also land of Singapore curries, you know. So um, it truly um, 
I thought was um, one of those elements that um, continue to, you know, make me surprised in many ways. So uh, here we are in Tucson, where the uh, country's uh, capital of Mexican food, and I noticed uh, your poached chicken and spiced mole sauce. So let's talk about mole yeah. and talk. Let's talk about the intersection of mole and curry. I feel they are perfectly intersected, and uh, moles um, have the complexity of a curry powder, <clears throat> and. Um, you weave in chocolate and you weave in, you know, some of the techniques of roasting and toasting and grinding. You end up with a sophisticated dish that um, is very much like curry, layered, sensual. Um, and I feel like um, Malays capture that um, essence of uh, what a curry does. What's a uh, what's a region of the world that uh, on a, maybe kind of mildly be the average person uh, reading the book would be surprised that curry is such a uh, prominent uh, ingredient in, in in the cooking in that country? Where is there a country out there or a region out there that, as you're doing this book, you're like, man, they're in the curry more than I thought they would be? Yeah, I mean, I look at to me one of the most classic countries that I've always said own curries more than India sometimes is Thailand. You know, they pound their pastes and herbs and spices, and they come up with these amazingly complex, you know, combination of flavors that they punctuate with coconut milk and other ingredients. And um, I love Thai curries, and so I think uh, that's um, fairly misunderstood. So for the we have a lot of we have a lot of home cooks that are listening to the show, um, and I think curries are still a mystery to a lot of the average American uh, home cook right now. So if someone is interested, uh-huh. and of course we you know we want to tell, get the on the curry trail uh, by Raghavan Ayer, yeah. but um, what, what, what would be uh, how would Raghavan set up the American home cook for uh, uh, diving into the world of curries? Uh, arm yourself with some good pots and pans. Yep. Um, make sure that, um, you know, when you add your curry powders, you don't burn. Oftentimes, I say it's better to grind your own spices fresh. So a spice grinder, like a coffee grinder, that is reserved for spices, um, actually are quite um, instrumental in delivering those sort of, you know, wild flavors into your into your curries. And so that's one of the things I would recommend. How about uh, when buying uh, the spices to make curries, right? I assume you would. We would prefer they go to a specialty store. And are there any products out there that a product brand that you like out there that's a consistent brand when it comes to the various spices that make up a curry? Uh, plenty. I mean, you know, Penzies does a nice job, I think, with their spices and making them approachable and accessible and, and inexpensive and. You know, you don't have to buy jars of it. I love um, shopping at co-ops where you can buy whole spices and little pouches and bulk, and um, you can judicially measure them out and then grind them as and when you need them. And then you end up with these incredible flavors, which I think are incomparable. And if my last question for you for the home cook is, if you're going to, what's a basic curry dish that you one or two curry dishes that you would say you're never done one before in your life. Start here. What's what's number one and two? I love the um, 
the Chinese curry puffs, for instance, um, <clears throat> you know, they usually take chicken or mushrooms and stir fry that with curry powder and then stuff them into these little convenient um, pastry shells, which are baked and uh, sort of like a handheld pie. And um, um, I think that's an excellent way of sampling something different. Um, for something with a little bit more oomph, you know, I love the noodles. The Singapore rice noodles are excellent. And that, um, you know, makes it really quite um, it's substantial. And I love it. And I love the texture of noodles. And so, uh, and if you like noodles, you can't go wrong with it. Well, Raghavan, thanks for the time. Thanks for writing the book on the Curry Trail. Uh, heal up, get better with uh, what you're what you're dealing with, Thank and uh, we'll uh, hopefully we'll we'll, we'll talk to you soon on an, on another book. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show. Take care. All right. Take care. That's Raghavan Iyer. The book is on the Curry Trail, and uh, you can get it at Barnes and Noble, Amazon. Really, just a beautiful book, and uh, the recipes in it are. Pretty, pretty. I, I, I was checking it out uh, yesterday, and the, the different menu. The, what I like about it: a grid cross section of global curries, and nothing too crazy. And I would tell you that you know Lili's Oriental Market on Lachoy and Orange Grove is probably a great place to start off in relation to looking for your various stuff for curries. Good morning to Scott Tilly from uh, Track T R A K, and you wanted to follow along at tracktucson.org. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Good morning. Well, I haven't seen you in a while, so welcome back. Thank you. Thank uh, you. It's great being here. Chelsea was on last year, and yeah. uh, she had a baby, and so uh, I got you instead. So hey, you're not yeah. as nice as Chelsea. She's a very I'm, nice lady. But. I'm I'm not as good looking as Chelsea <laughs> either. So. Uh, tell folks uh, what does Track stand for, and what are you guys for the newbies that don't know, may not be familiar. Uh, Track stands for Therapeutic Ranch for Animals and Kids. Um, we strengthen the Tucson community through our animal interactions. Um, we've we're a local nonprofit that has been impacting the Tucson community over 15 years. Um, we partner with uh, a variety of assisted living homes, uh, TMC Children's Clinic. Uh, we were the Angel Charities beneficiary in 2019 for our Animal Assisted Life Skills Program. Nice. Shout out to those ladies. Um, we, we do riding lessons. We do birthday parties. Uh, we do traveling, petting zoos, field trips. Um, a lot of impact in the Tucson community. Uh, what kind of animals do, are you, are you uh, interact having folks interact with? We've got a, we've got about seventy five animals on the ranch, uh, ranging anywhere from we've got rabbits, chickens, ducks, uh, goats, donkeys, miniature donkeys, miniature horses, full size horses, pigs. Um, we just got some baby goats. We've had them out at the. Tucson Gem Show uh, oh, nice. recently, and uh, we did a fundraiser out there. We raised ten thousand dollars out there uh, with our baby goats and McCall and Company. Uh, she has a giant nine foot tall geode um, that she allows us to come raise money in a photo booth out there. Um, great organization, great lady as well. And uh, any ranch dogs at that? Ranch yeah. dogs. We do have dogs, but unfortunately, our insurances have have really uh, kind of put a uh, a halt on on dogs at the ranches. We do have 
uh, service animal dog that we're working on. Okay. Um, we we lost our Saint Bernard last year. Oh, that's uh, horrible. He was our main service animal. Um, but we are working on another one at the moment. Every ranch should have a ranch dog. That's just my my belief in life. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, one of the reasons uh, you're here, not just to explain what you do, but we definitely you're, you qualify under the Arizona Charitable Tax Credit under the education. So, a couple can actually donate eight hundred dollars. And remember, I think we've taught you well, Wakey's, over the years that that is not a deduction. That is, if you owe the state of Arizona a thousand dollars in your taxes, and you're right. $800 as a couple to track, what happens is they just take the 800 bucks off of your tax bill from the state of Arizona. So uh, for you people with horrible math skills, that means you would still owe 200 just to let you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so supporting you guys through tax credits and beyond, right? What Talk about the lives that are changed because of this interaction between human and animal. Well, our fellow animal. <laughs> well, I, I'd have to say it, it just it goes all the way around with our youth these days. Um, you know, their, their influence with technology and the telephone is really, um, it's really lacking them in just problem-solving skills, common sense, um, just uh, being able attention to span. attention span, <laughs> being able to look someone in the eye and greet them, speak with them. Um, you know, I, I, I see it at the ranch every day. Uh, you know, families coming in, kind of just struggling uh, to communicate, struggling to be a family unit. And they come in, they start volunteering, they get involved with the program. The child makes an attachment to an animal, yep. and then the responsibility comes. Then that what we call our animal assisted life skills come because they they have compassion for an animal. They become responsible. They want to feed it. They want to clean it. Uh, they want to walk it. They want to exercise it. Um, and then that kind of graduates into our larger animals where, um, you know, we've got 30 phenomenal horses. I'd, I'd probably say we have the best horses in the world. Um, teaching kids in, in a very safe manner. Um, we've got a beautiful facility. I've got a 62-foot covered round pen with a misting system and a big fan. We do summer camps and spring break camps. Uh, we've got a spring break camp coming up uh, for TUSD's spring break. Uh, oh, very cool. Um, so there's just so so many ways that the ranch changes lives from, you know, from the parents that come. They'll say, Scott, I don't, I don't understand it. How, how do you get them? to come and scoop your horse's poop <laughs> and I can barely get them to pick up their dirty laundry and make it to the hamper. Yep. But you know, the first day of summer, we, we have like a volunteer program where all of these young kids can come and help out on the ranch and stuff. You know, the first day of summer, we do summer camps too. We do 10 weeks of summer camp and at six o'clock in the morning, they could be sleeping in <laughs> on their phone. But I'll have 15 of those kids lined up at my gate, chomping at the bit to get in. That's amazing. So, um, and then I take these kids um, who really, you know, cultivate the track magic, is what we like to call it. Um, and we take these kids out to um, assisted living homes, memory care facilities, uh, TMC Children's Clinic, where they get to be the animal handler in the service visit. Sure. Um, so it's, it's really a win, win, win for everyone. What's a, uh, give me a, um, give me a recent, th there's lots of stories 
that the track magic changing lives. Give me give me a more dramatic one. There's everyone gets touched in a different way. Give me give me a, give me a good dramatic one uh, that you, that just right at the top of your head. Well, right off the top of my head, I would say I have. If I a, make you cry, I apologize. Uh, yeah, you're probably gonna get me <laughs> a little bit tear jerky today. I'm with you, buddy. Um, I have a I have a young man. Um, he has autism, um, and you know at when they turn 18, a lot of the services drop off for these people. And, you know, even for kids that don't have autism at 18, are they really ready to go out in the world and, and uh, be on their own? And, probably and do not. Stuff? So this young man, um, mother and father have exhausted every avenue. Every specialist have, have gone, you know, to the earth's ends for this child. Um have literally tried everything, every specialist in the world. And he, she heard about our program from our community director who has passed away, Melinda Sharma. We also have a memorial set up for her uh, on, our, on our website. Um, but this young man, he um, comes from California uh, every six weeks. And he, he uh, started coming to me very nonverbal. Um, uh, you know, would flap and all of the, you know, all of the characteristics of someone with severe autism has. We got him in and, and quite frankly, mom didn't even think that this was going to work. He was terrified of dogs. And this is when I had my, my service, St. Bernard Bubba. Oh, what a name. Um, so within the first trip that he came... Um, it was amazing. It was uh, the miracles just started unfolding. Speech. He started to speak. We got him on a horse. Wow! And you know, at a at an IQ that's under sixty testing. Um, after a few visits, I've got him on a horse, taking direction, uh, speaking small sentences. Now that's a um, beautiful. We are just making leaps and bounds of progress with this young man. Um, it really really makes a difference when parents of these young people have just basically poured their whole life into this. But you know what? No one has ever asked them how we can help them. And at Track Ranch, that's what we do. A guy that I haven't seen in a long time is uh, Professor Daniel Asia. Daniel, what's going on, young man? Not a whole <laughs> lot, except it's snowing out there. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Here we invited a guest here, and we give her an inch of snow. Correct. Instead of 70-degree weather. So, Daniel, what, what are you a professor of, so people know? I am a professor of music, and I am a composer of contemporary classical music. Look Symphonies, operas, string quartets, things like that. Are you? Uh, how's that business going? Oh, it's a tough business. <laughs> now, it's been a tough business for about 300 years. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I knew what I was getting into. You, you need an Austrian emperor or somebody exactly. to sponsor you. Exactly. We're, lo we're looking around for one. Or one of those Goombas in Florence. One That's, of those right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, you, as part of the Center for American Culture and Ideas. Yeah. Or ideas, as we say in the uh, in the Midwest. Right. Uh, you have an event this evening at the fabulous Hacienda del Sol. That's it. That's it. Uh, uh, the Center for American Culture Ideas is a five hundred one three C of which I'm the president. Look at you. It's, uh, you know, it's, president. It, it, yeah, nice I'm, job. I'm the president. Hey, it's a small organization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, we started a couple years ago. It's something I do. Uh, it's not my day job. I teach at the universities. You've 
just mentioned. Anyway, the center is, um, we sponsor a, um, a visiting uh, presenter series called The Cultured Mind. We also have a podcast called The Cultured Mind. Who knew? Who knew? Love so it. So now hopefully people will know. So uh, Amy Wax is professor at uh, the UPenn Law School. She's been there for over a, a couple of decades. She's the Robert Mundine Professor of Law. And uh, she addresses lots of academic stuff like social welfare, law and policy, as well as the relationship of the family and the workplace and labor markets. But if anybody's heard of her now, it's uh, because she's being driven out of the UPenn Law School after a, a very long and distinguished career. They're making life very difficult for her. What did she say? Well, she... <laughs> what is she teaching? What is she teaching? She's not teaching anything other than asking questions that lawyers uh, tend to ask, which is, hmm, is uh, affirmative action actually working? Um, and how can we tell if it is or isn't working? So because of some of the things that she has uncovered and spoken about, she is now considered uh, enemy number one and considered a racist. And here she is a nice uh, woman who has been had an incredibly distinguished career at UPenn, and they're doing all they can to, uh, to get her out. And this is the faculty and the students and, of course, the dean, because it's the dean who drives these sorts of things. So I guess the question is, how, did the, what, how, how long has she been speaking about such things? Oh, probably 10 or 15 years. Gotcha. At, at least, a long time. Well, then she's lasting longer than I thought at the yeah. University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and as Amy would say, though, she's saying pretty much the same things she's been saying for the last 15 or 20 years, which were considered to not be particularly controversial. But now, of course, in our new woke environment, they are very controversial. Well, and when we talk about has affirmative action worked, we've had uh, folks on this show talking about if you're if you come from the Asian American world, they'll tell you that affirmative action's upside down, right? That that if because a lot of Asian American kids have lots of good good scores uh, and and educational outcomes, uh, they they're 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 now so like getting accepted at some schools, as we know in places that might rhyme with the word Harvard. Uh, that's correct. That's correct. Well, and, and you used a, a good word when you said everything is upside down. Yeah. And that is precisely what the woke world is. It is completely upside down um, in all respects. It, it takes that, um, that idea really from Maoist communist ideology and Marxism, which says anybody who was at the top, who may have worked for it, by the way, should now be on the bottom. And anybody on the bottom, because they were on the bottom should ipso by de facto uh, definition now be on the top because of uh, what their place was and having nothing to do of course with merit or meritocracy this is the just reverse of anything having to do with merit the idea that the college uh, university um, marketplace of ideas is now becoming a very closed marketplace right it's critical thinking and dissenting opinion now is that's just that's not their bag anymore but the verbiage that is used of course is just that we were we will teach all students to be critical thinkers 
as long as they are critically thinking in the manner in which we would like them to be thinking <laughs> critically. Correct. Correct. I mean, that's the bizarre nature of all of this. Right. I mean, it's very, again, back to the Orwellian. We are idea. indeed in an or- Orwellian <laughs> world in, in my estimation at this point. We're rewriting books, right? We are rewriting books. We're taking books out of libraries. We are rewriting facts. We are recontextualizing everything we know. Um, I have I have no problem with expanding the canon, but the canon is there because over a thousand years or so we've figured out what is pretty good. So sure, let's expand the canon if we find other things that we've missed that are really great, but don't throw the damn thing out. Another book I've been revisiting has been Fahrenheit 451. Uh-huh. And I keep going back to the scene where uh, Montag and his uh, boss there, and he kind of asks him, when did we start banning books and burning books, right? Mm-hmm. And he just talks about how we just found these 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 different ideas unsettling. Right. Right? That's where it all started. And right. so instead of, you know, we're, we're, we're just going to burn the ideas and throw them in the garbage so we don't upset people. I kind of feel like we're... <clears throat> We're, we're, we're treading in that, we're slouching that way, or uh, we're in the middle of it. No, no, we're in the middle of it. <laughs> we're, we're not slouching that way. In other words, if universities now have safe spaces and places where students can go because they're feeling upset having been uh, confronted with an idea that seems somehow to them revolutionary or uh, revolting, right? and that they can't deal with the idea of actually confronting a different opinion than what they've been told is actually the truth, then we're in a problem in the universities gen- are. generally the um so for you how long have you how, how long have you seen this coming in real uh, your guy who's been in the university sphere how long the, the, this how, when did this start really really hitting a critical level of this is a problem well it certainly has been coming on i would say for the last 10 years yeah um i guess it hit its height uh, after the summer of george floyd yep uh, with Black Lives Matters, um, uh, many universities or departments in universities um, had uh, people literally say that everything that we do now will be in the service of Black Lives Matters or will be in the service of diversity, inclusion, and equity. That that is now our job, our task. Now, remember, what they're saying is it's not education. Right. That is the most important thing that we wish to be engaged in, but rather this quote unquote political task of supporting goals of Black Lives Matter. If you look at, I was just, if you do a Google News search just of, um, of Amy. Mm-hmm. There's these art these articles, you know, Amy Wax in the crosshairs. Right. Right. And then you see right. Vox, uh, Amy Wax has been offending um, um, uh, minorities for years. Will tenure save her? I mean, it's across the board. I mean, she is right. right. She's at the middle of this thing right now. She's in the middle of it. And I wanted to bring her out so that she could set the record straight. Um, I've, I've read many of these articles that you've just alluded to, yeah. um, including, for example, the journal such as Inside Higher Education, which is purportedly to support and report on faculty and what's going on in universities. And the articles that I read take out quotes from things that she have said and put them just in the converse light of what the statement that she actually said. Now, there's anything I say right now to you, I'm sure somebody could take something I say out of context and I will look like an idiot because that's the nature of being able to pull something out of context. I usually look like an idiot and they don't have to do anything with what I say. So that's that's the good thing. So I'm looking at this college fix discussion, right, where, you know, um, 
the Penn Law Dean hit with a grievance, right? This yep. is just from a month ago. Yep. Right? Over drawn out Amy Wax investigation. Right. Right? Uh, right. File January 16th. Uh, this has been going on for years. That's right. Well, that's the way things work in academia and in the laws, in the legal system. Yep. Amy has now had to lawyer up um, to respond to these assaults. And what's really quite astonishing about what they say about her is that they use words, they use terminology, they use instances, but they don't cite anything specifically. They don't define their terminology. And it's the most unprofessional, unlegal kind of assault. It's just astonishing this is coming from the legal community at UPenn. And it's almost like they, they're acting like internet trolls. That's the best part, right? So when people hit me, they're trolls with stuff and they go, you, you, th- this general broad thing that I'm a bastard because of blank, right? Yep. And the thing that usually ruins the conversation for them is, hey, um, just provide a few details, e- exactly. right? And then e- exactly. it's like they never respond. E- e- exactly. <laughs> and that's precisely what's happening to Professor Wax in, the, in this situation. We got Ryan Larson, sports director, uh, on the line. When I saw, whenever I, we, we, again, you're totally correct. It seems like they were a little weak from the free throw line, also, which never helps, right? Yep. Um, you know, they when you when I heard that they scored 88 points and they lost to ASU, right? And they're usual. The team usually lets up 71 points a game. It's everything yep. you said it was. Yeah, it, it's a mess. And you're right, their free throw shooting is bad, too. And that's another reason for concern is you think about it. Arizona shot 34 free throws in this game. That's a ton of free throws. They only made 23 of them, which 23 sounds like, like a lot, but that's 67% from the field, from the free throw line. That's not a good percentage, even at the college level. And ASU, on their side, they shot 10 free throws, and they made six of them. So the free throw disparity was 24 attempts. Think about where Arizona would have been in this game if they hadn't gotten that many free throw attempts. And while they definitely earned a lot of those because they were bigger and more physical than ASU at a lot of points on the offensive side, so ASU had to foul, Arizona did get a friendly whistle at times. So you know, they, Arizona really stayed in this game just because they attempted so many free throws. If they don't get, if they, they're shooting 20 free throws in this game, they lose by 10 to the Sun Devils. So there are things to be concerned about with Arizona, just the, how bad of an overall performance that was defensively. And the fact that even when Arizona played so well offensively, they only were able to stay in this game because of free throws, but they also kind of ultimately ended up losing this game because they couldn't convert all of their free throws attempts, or at least a higher percentage of them. So I understand we got, we're going on the road to California. Then we got a Pac-12 tournament in Vegas, right? And so, but we're really to mm-hmm. a point in time now, right? Is that we know we're going to be, you know, an upper seed in the tournament by the time it all plays out, no matter how the next five, four or five games play out. So in the end, Ryan Larson, what needs to happen for the Arizona Wildcats Going into the tournament, forget about the next few days, games. What needs, so we need good D and one or two people need to score a certain amount of points and we should be okay. If any of that falls apart, we're in trouble. Yeah, I think if you look going into the tournament and you look at the NCAA tournament as a whole, there are two things that travel really well in the NCAA tournament. One is defense and one is guard play. And the problem for Arizona is neither of those are the Wildcats' strengths this season. They they rely on their centers. They rely on their big men to score offensively. And their guard play has been inconsistent for a large percentage of the season. They certainly have talented guards, 
like Pell Larson, Kirk Risa, Courtney Ramey, Cedric Henderson. That's a good collection of guards, but they have not none of those players have put together a consistently good season. They've had highs and lows, that's for sure. And so for Arizona, if you're going to make a deep tournament run, there, there's basically two options. One is that to Dallas and Ballo play at an otherworldly rate for six straight games where they are consistently good every game, getting 15-plus points and putting up a quality effort. I, I'll, I'll just say an effort on defense. Then Arizona can hang with any team in the NCAA tournament. But if Tubelas or Ballo struggle or don't have a good game, they then it's going to fall on Arizona's guards. And can we really trust that Pella Larson or like Kirk Creesa is going to score 15 a game for four straight games? You just can't do that. And so for Arizona, the question remains is what, what are they going to get out of their guards in March? That, that's probably going to determine the depth of their tournament run. If they have a second round game where Creesa is going two of nine from three, where Courtney Ramey goes like two of eight from three, and then Pella Larson doesn't score, they're probably going to lose that game to the seventh seed. But if Krisa goes five of nine, Ramey gets hot from three in a game. They they can make a final four run still. That's certainly possible. But it's just hard to predict for Arizona because they've been so inconsistent in that area. So is it the horses or the coaching? I, I think it's more the horses because we saw what the coaching could do last year with Arizona. We know Tommy Lloyd's a good coach. When you come in year year one and you 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 win the Pac-12 and you're a one seed, that that's certainly a sign of good coaching. I think he's done a pretty good job so far again. But the horses, when you're missing Arizona, desperately misses Matherin and Terry specifically because having those two guys on the outside who can reliably shoot and generate shots of their own and create opportunities for Dubellis. That was when Arizona was at its peak. And they just don't have that this season. The guard play has just been far more inconsistent, and Arizona really misses that. I bet. I bet. Well, Larson, great job as always, buddy. Thanks, Chris. Great talking to you. you. Enjoy the blizzard. You kicked the hell out of most other U of A pundits again in this town, so great job. <laughs> Wonderful job. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. All right. Later, my friend. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks. And we have the man known as the Filthy Pirate, Dan Spencer, in the house. Dan, good morning. Good morning. He is our uh, our provider of uh, our amazing uh, studio coffee here from Filthy Pirate. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning to all the Wakeys, and thank you for uh, stopping by and seeing us. How long have you been full-time Filthy Pirate now since you retired from the force? Uh, so probably a uh, little over two years. Okay. And I assume the the regret of doing that, of getting uh, retiring and doing this full time, is about zero. It is. <laughs> it is for lots of reasons, and I miss the I miss the people I worked with. I missed what we did, sure. what we were supposed to do. Thank you. Uh, let me clarify that the last few years, what we were supposed to do, but uh, I don't miss the all the nonsense. And in fact, kind of forgot about most of it. God bless you. Yeah, it's great. You get to hang out with your family and enjoy. Them I work and, with my family and, and, and see all the cool people like the wakeys come in and yeah love it the wakey there are some wakeys i know who are that's it there you you've done your job you've hooked them to the filthy pirate and they're not going they're not they're not going anywhere else yeah it's blue collar <laughs> coffee man like <laughs> it's not liberal trash <laughs> So talk about I, I, for for you know, we have new listeners they cycle on and off to the show over the years. Talk about your quest originally for originally low acid coffee that had great flavor. Yeah, so probably about 15 16 years into law enforcement which probably put me about 20 years in a uniform of drinking really bad coffee <laughs> between it's got, them. it's got flavor crystals. Yeah. Though. <laughs> dirt water my stomach just started to uh not agree with it and i was like man there's got to be a way to do it and i was looking for a hobby too and so we 
went on a journey and did some research and talked to some people and figured out what low acid coffee is and coffee can be very acidic for lots of reasons and we were able to reduce um, those reasons down to a very smooth coffee and we're kind of the staple in Tucson and there's not many in the country doing it uh, what we're doing with coffee it's not is it that much of a pain in the butt to eliminate the acid there is a greater expense and there is uh, a little more work into it um, you can't buy just cheap coffee beans you know the green beans you have to kind of pick which beans are going to end up being a little bit lower in acidity. Also, the dark, darker the roast, the lower the acidity um, by nature. The lighter the roast, the higher the acidity. Okay. That's kind of a North American trend is to keep it light, light medium, and taste all the notes in there, which also brings in the acidity, gotcha. which is fine for a 20-year-old. It's not so good for a 45, 50, 60-year-old person. It's not, it's not a great experience. So we've done it. We've mastered it. We've done very well. Uh, we enjoy it. That's our lane. That's what we stay in. People ask us, why, are we, why don't we do a cafe? Why don't we serve cups of coffee? And we make coffee for people to brew at home or at work, and we don't do the cup thing, and I want no part of that. So. <laughs> It reminds me of when talking to Don from Barrio Bread because he his bread's a little more expensive than the average bear out there, but he's not using crap ingredients, crap oil, things like that, and you you don't get as much uh, digestive reverb off of his bread. And people who even have gluten issues are doing better with his bread that's not gluten-free right. than they would otherwise. Right. Even our flavored coffees, which I think we have probably 15, 16 of them right now, um, they're all gluten-free oils that we use, natural oils. So we try to, everything that we do, we try to make sure that it doesn't counteract what we're doing with the actual base coffee. Right, because you can go the cheap way, which is a lot of artificial kind of flavored oils right. to do such things, and then it kind of defeats the purpose of what you we're You get what here. you pay for. Correct. And the flavored coffees are blowing up for you, aren't they? They are. The bourbon pecan is our top seller, has been for th- you know almost three years now, and <laughs> nothing even comes close to it. And what's the fun title of the uh, name of the bourbon pecan? Man of War. Man of War. Thank you. <laughs> it's going to sting you like a jellyfish. <laughs> Even if you don't like like flavored coffee, which is me, I don't normally do a lot of flavored coffees. I like the dark roast. The flavored coffees, they grab you. Um, we've done a, a really good job with that. Let's talk about, as a guy who's a former military, former police officer, you are trying to give back through the coffee. We do. We do. We do a lot of charity throughout the year. Uh, We get a lot of requests for different military and law enforcement events. The big one that we do, uh, which I'm very proud of and I'm very happy to help Mrs. Height, is the Eric Height Foundation, which obviously is local. It helps provide uh, daycare and, and a lot of other resources. I'm, I'm not really not doing it justice, but she provides a lot of resources to our first responders uh, here in um, Southern Arizona, not just TPD, but all of the first responders. Um, so we have a coffee that you can purchase, um, a medium roast coffee, and which is what we're drinking this morning. Yep. And the proceeds of that coffee go back to Mrs. Heights Foundation, um, goes right back into your first responders. So you get great coffee when you buy it, and your money goes towards a good cause. Is it is it is just is it just called the Eric Height Foundation Coffee Blend or it is okay. yeah mm-hmm. all right I didn't know if it had a cool you got so many cool that's a cool name we, too but. yeah we kept it uh, right in you know line <laughs> with what what our foundation is and so Noemi right now is on the front line of um, collecting money for that uh, cop who lost his leg yes 
mm-hmm. uh, about 10 days ago. So Correct. she's doing it again. Yeah. And uh, from what I hear, a young cop, he's ready to go back to work, uh, even though he's physically not ready. Mentally, he's ready, um, which is, you know, kind of a testament to just that profession. And it doesn't get enough credit these days as to the caliber of people that we have out there. So get out there and support and donate to her cause, buy some coffee. The money goes right back to, to your first responders and their families. What's the uh, the next step for the pirate empire? Where 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 what 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 does growth look like if you if you and your wife sat down and wrote that down? What's that look like in the next five years? You um, you know, we we've kind of just started talking about what what we want to do. We're really happy with what we have. We've brought on probably since we've been in that store. We don't, we started with five coffees, uh, five different roasts. We probably have thirty five now plus oh my tea. Lord. We have local honey. Local hot sauce, spices, ugly rubs, cookies. ugly cookies that we make. Which, <laughs> if you've had them, you know what what they're about. They're uh, it's they're very addictive, like crack cocaine. Uh, so. I I can confirm, not that I know what crack cocaine is like, <laughs> but I can definitely <laughs> confirm that they are very yummy and very addictive. My wife makes these. She's done it for thirty years. Um, she's done a fantastic job making these. And we used to just give them as gifts at holiday season, and people would literally almost fight over these things. A couple years ago, we decided let's let's hand some out at the store, and then people said you should sell them. We would like to buy more. We've had people come in and buy them, walk out, eat them in the car, come back in the store and buy them again. <laughs> they are that good. I won't touch them. Like I, I'll, if I have one, it's done. I'm I'm knee deep in a bag. Yeah. Gotcha. So. All right. They so start f- knocking at the door. You know, an hour before it opens. <laughs> hey man. Hey man. Can I get a fix? <laughs> so filthypirate.coffee on the on the, on the interwebs. Filthypirate.coffee. Correct. Uh, Orange Grove and Lachoya. What's hours of operation usually? We're closed on Wednesdays. Okay. Um, that's the only day we're closed. We're ten to five through the week and eleven uh, to four on Sunday. 10 to 5 on Saturday as well. Gotcha. Well, thanks for doing what you're doing. You're living your coffee dream after all your service over all these years. And I love your story. Thank you. I love your coffee. Appreciate it. Ben Ryan, Divine Bovine. Good morning, gentlemen. Look at you, young man. How are you doing? Oh, young. That's so nice of you. It's all about your spirit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm doing wonderful. And it's radio. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, I even got dressed up today. I'm, I'm, I'm looking fantastic. I did my hair, um, brushed my teeth. I, yeah, I'm living life. It was so good to see uh, you at the racetrack opening weekend. I saw you. Absolutely. It's you know what? It's Tucson. Go go support everything you can. And, and, and it was a good time. You know, it's it's fun to go out, see a lot of people there. The amount of people I knew who show, showed up that weekend was great. Yeah, yeah, it was a good time. I lost money, so. Well, well. but you gained lots of memories. I did. I did. It it, it was worth doing. You know, I've learned that I should not bet on the ponies. Well, just a little bit. Don't get too crazy. Well, well, that's it. There's okay losing a little bit of money. That's all gambling for me. If I gamble, I'm going to lose. It's just life. Divine bovine. For people who don't know what a divine bovine is, shame on you. What is a divine bovine? Oh my! Um, <laughs> you know we we are we're divine bovine by Ryan. Um, <laughs> we we're a premier uh, burger restaurant. Uh, we we serve higher end burgers using the top quality ingredients, and you know we we've been around about four years now, and we we make sure that every day we're bringing in quality through the back door and quality out the front door. <laughs> what uh 
when you from when you first started this business to where you're at now because previously you're in the barbecue world I, I did that a little bit right and tucson dear tucson we still need another barbecue hey, restaurant man. i just want to tell everyone Just that. a couple when mm-hmm. dave martin left broke my heart absolutely <laughs> yes yes his white sauce was amazing um but um what have you learned now? Uh, ben, uh, when did you start with Divine Bovine? Uh, it was in 2019. Wow. Right? <laughs> it, it, it's been a fast four years. Uh, I've learned a lot. It's going through the, the COVID experience, going through um, the supply chain experience. and I've, I've cooked my whole life. I've owned restaurants for 15 years. It, this has been the weirdest three years, four years of my life. Well, you had to make your burger travel, which... Right. Typically, it's like a taco. It's got a shelf life of about three minutes before it falls apart. Absolutely. That, that was one of our largest challenges in the beginning is people are like, we love eating it here, but switching to a to-go model and that, people are like, I get it home, and it's turned into fork and knife food. Yeah. Um, but we, we've worked with finding a bun that works perfectly. We re-engineered how the burger is built um, so that it doesn't sog up our buns. And now, as you can see, I mean, I made these things a little bit ago. And they hold up fantastic now. They look ma- magnifico. Yeah, yeah, they look good. Thank you. Thank you. Where, where's the bun coming from? Uh, so Frank Mendez uh, from Mendez Tortillas. Uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, you know what? I, I used La Baguette for years, uh, and then Norm retired. And that was my, my opportunity to go try other bakers, and I did. And You know what? He, him and his brother do this, and it's an incredible bun. It's probably my favorite one I've tried in all these years it looks a little i don't want to say brioche but the outside looks brioche that shine on it it, it is brioche um it is you know we call it a brioche but it, it sounds it's, like a pokemon brioche it's a brioche <laughs> <laughs> you, you do have to try them all um it, but it has a little bit of that hispanic bakery taste to it um which you know when you eat it it's like is that like a concha like it has that little flavor but it is still light and fluffy but sturdy it toasts up nice it's it's the perfect bun i'm so happy we changed well between your the care you take on your grind yes right because you've talked about i think it's three different yep it's cuts. chuck brisket short rib um and, and it's, it's fresh so there's no freezer so everything's coming in bright red flavorful it, it tastes like beef uh, like like <laughs> it tastes like it's supposed to. It, it yeah. tastes like it's supposed to. People are, what seasonings do you use? Oh, Nothing. salt and pepper. Yeah. You know that that's all you need. If you have quality, you don't have to dress it up, pretend it down, and go from there. Well, what's nice about your bun is it's holding up a. It's not a chintzy burger. If you've never been, you if you've been, you know. But if you've never been, it's not a chintzy burger. This thing's like a half inch thick, if not better. Oh yeah, we we do a half pound burger. Um, we don't do anything smaller. We don't want to do anything smaller. There's no smash burger. There's nothing like that. I want my burger to be hearty. I want to be full when I'm done eating it. Plus, I like my burger medium rare, and you can't do that on a smash burger. Not not that I'm bashing the smash burger. They're delicious, but mine's better. <laughs> yeah, true, true story. Um, I think the other thing too with your um. The the um I was, I'll, I'll ask you guys before we go to break and then we'll come back. Ground beef at the supermarket right, is tasting like nothing lately. I feel like there's I mean they they have squeezed every ounce of an innate beef flavor out of ground beef lately. Oh, absolutely! It's it's not the same. <laughs> I don't know where they're getting it from. Where are you buying it at? Well, I'm just I'm just that, I, I, that's part I, of I'm the just problem. saying that's part of the part problem. Of the, G- generic. I, I, you know, if I, I go to Kent, I'll get some at the sausage shop because he's grinding at least fresh, sure. the kind of thing, right? 
But if you're stuck at a... So where should I get it at a supermarket? Out of the three that we have available? Yes. In order. It should be Bashes, then Safeway, then Fries. Unless your fries is better than mine, but my fries is horrible. No, fries sucks. Fries sucks. They do. But but, but the trick is, just go to the butcher. Be like, hey, give me that chuck. Grind it up for me. They're going to look at you funny, kind of be like... But they'll do it, and then you have a delicious ground beef. Uh, You'll pay a little bit more. The guy at Safeway, there's one guy back there that he will do anything for you. Right? That's and what they should. I love that guy. It, so. it is true. You do have to ask. Yes. Right? For that. So for me, like, in the old days, like, if there's some sort of, like, before crab legs became $88 a pound, right, when they were semi-reasonable, oh, right? Yeah. But they would have them in the, in the case, right? And I would say, hey, can I just get the ones frozen out of the box? Yeah. And they're like, the couple like, well, well, no, they're right here. It's not the same. Right? I don't want the ones that have been thawing out, free frozen, thawing out. <laughs> Absolutely. I want the Arctic stuff in the back right now. Yes. <laughs> I want giant icicles on it. <laughs> Correct. All right. 7.15 in the morning. Sean McCluskey, Ben Ryan from Divine Bovine. He's on Wilmot and Speedway right behind the Beyond Bread uh, over there. And the batter- the battery place still there? The battery place is there. They're Very. never going away. <laughs> <laughs> What's your website? Uh, DivineBovineBurgers.com. And what's your hours of operation? We run 11 to 8, seven days a week. Beautiful. All right, let's uh, we'll come back with one of our favorites, Ben Ryan from Divine Bovine. 